As you guys may have picked up as we were reading through it, the first time I read through this, I thought, what is going on? (laughs) It was so confusing and like just seemed like it was all over the place, at least for me. I was like unsure what was happening, but I noticed that one word kept repeating over and over and over again in all three of the different paragraphs and also twice in the last verse, and that is the word rain. Not that kind of rain, but the rain of like kingdom, kingly type rain. And what this passage is telling us is it's talking about how there are a couple, two different kingdoms. There are two different rulers that you and I can be a part of and underneath. There's two different jurisdictions that we can exist and abide in. And I don't know about you, but there's been a couple times when I've been like outside of my jurisdiction. Have you ever been like outside of your jurisdiction or like in like a foreign jurisdiction where you didn't really know what was happening? Well, this one time I was in a, it was probably like four years ago and I was able to go to like Israel with like a church group and everything. And it was like so fun and exciting, but the most confusing like area there with like jurisdiction was the Temple Mount, which is obviously like one of the most holy, revered places for multiple different religions on earth. For both Jews, Christians, and Muslims, it's one of the most holy sites. And so how the jurisdiction works on there is it's in the nation of Israel. So it's protected by Israel, but the Temple Mount itself is actually controlled and run by the mosques and the Muslim community. And then oftentimes Christians, they come and visit all the time. So all three of them are all like, crossing paths and crossing, uh, yeah, crossing paths at that area. And so while we were there, we had the privilege to go actually up on top of the Temple Mount. And so we got up super early because we wanted to beat the lines and everything. And we got onto the Temple Mount and we're like taking pictures of the, of the Dome of the Rock Mosque and walking around. And it was just like beautiful, incredible. And, and um, so we stopped to kind of like do this little like uh, Bible study thing. And so the pastor was leading like a little Bible study on the Temple Mount. And as we're standing there, uh, I notice a guy like over to the right, kind of like start talking loudly to like some people who are around in Arabic. He's, he's talking and then he like starts talking to like a little walkie talkie and I'm like, what's gonna happen? Like what's going on? And then like he starts talking really loudly to some people and more people start coming over. And then he talks to my pastor and is like, hey, do you speak Hebrew? And my pastor goes, no. Nothing except for shalom. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. And so they, they start talking and then they start talking over the, the pastor in, in Arabic. And so finally, like, we can tell that we're like, we need to start moving. So we all start walking. And I'm just curious because in these kinds of situations, I always want to know what's going on just because I'm curious. So I like weasel my way to the front of the group (laughs) and start to like listen to the translators and everything just to see what was going on. And so I just go and like stand like slightly nearby to hear what's happening. And and, like they're guiding us off. And so I asked the translator like, what's going on? And like, I guess they they were like upset with what, with the fact that we were like opening the Bible and stuff there. And and, um, they were calling curses down on us and everything. And so we like went walking out and, and, I knew that we were underneath different jurisdiction, that like the things that like maybe were okay somewhere else were not okay there. And the, depending on which jurisdiction you're in depends on, it depends on how you live. And, and it's, it's depends on where, what reign you're under, what jurisdiction 
you're under. And here there's two different reigns that are described. And the first reign is, or one of the reigns is the reign that leads to life. It's the reign of the righteousness of Jesus that leads to life and um, goodness. And it's the way in which we were designed. And then there's also the reign that leads to death. And here, what he does is he shows us first that this reign that leads to death, this reign of death that we're all underneath, this kingdom of death that we're all a part of, is something that's common throughout all humanity. Just by virtue of being a human, you and I, it means that we're underneath the reign of death. We all end up dying. And what he does is he goes back to Adam to show this. So look with me back at verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not yet counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. So he goes back to the Garden of Eden to kind of explain what happened when Adam sinned and when Adam fell. And so let's, I'm going to go back and read kind of like a little bit of what happened back there. You see, what happened is God created the world. He created it good. And then he created man and woman. He created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a garden. And he provided for them everything that they need. He provided for them food. He provided for them companionship. He provided for them a place to be able to live. And it was all good, is what it says. Everything God created was good. Then in that environment, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And here's the story of that, where it says in verse 3, or chapter 3 of verse 1 of the book of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves clothing. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to me gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The classic story of Adam and Eve, where they ate the forbidden fruit. And what Paul does in Romans chapter 5 is he gives an explanation of the results, the implications of what happened when Adam and Eve ate. And the first thing 
that Paul picks up on and the first thing that happened in this story is that you and I, because of the sin of Adam, we are underneath condemnation. Now, condemnation is a emotion of dejection. It's a feeling of dejection where it's a... It's the recognition that we've fallen short of the standard of God and then the dejection that comes from it. And oftentimes, when, when we think of condemnation, we often get it confused with conviction. Conviction and condemnation are two separate things. What conviction is, is it's the drawing of God to, uh, drawing of us to God. God draws us to himself through conviction. Says so that this is not very good, and so he draws us to himself because he knows that it's going to hurt us. Sin ultimately leads to sadness. It goes against the way in which we were designed. And so he uses conviction to draw us to himself. But what condemnation does is it draws us away from God. It actually turns us away from God and causes us to hide. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They immediately started to hide. They hid from the Lord. And what condemnation does is it doesn't cause us to draw closer to God. It causes us to draw away from God and to run away from him. And so often what we can say, or the solution to conviction is, oh, well, no, you're, you're all good. Like, oh, if you have conviction, like, or co- condemnation, no, you're totally fine. You're, you're all good. But really, we read in the first three, three chapters that you and I, all humanity, we, we really aren't very good. <laughs> like, you and I, we, we mess up. And so... The solution isn't to say, oh, no, I really am good, and that's how I'm going to get rid of condemnation. It's instead to go to the grace of God. It's to say, even though I have messed up, even though I am not perfect, and even though deep down I really know I'm not good, God is totally gracious, and God is totally kind. And you see, condemnation, the root of condemnation, is found in a lie, uh, a lie that slanders God's character. What condemnation says is that God will never forgive you. That what you've done is too much. That what you've done is too far and he doesn't really love you. And he won't really forgive you. That's condemnation coming at you and saying it's a lie about God's character. And that truly is a lie. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. God can forgive you and God does love you. It's a lie in order to be able to say, if we say to ourselves, God can't forgive me, God doesn't love me, I'm going to run away from him. Condemnation is ultimately a lie at its very root. And its solution is then the truth of who God is, that he truly is gracious, he truly is loving, and he truly is kind. What condemnation is, is when we're in the moment of feeling like utter dejection because of the sin that we have committed, and we're feeling the, 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 the condemnation coming upon us, it's like we're dehydrated. It's like we're dehydrated. And what we decide, the solution, is to go run into the desert. I'm dehydrated. I'm going to go run into the desert. The solution to dehydration is to not go run into the desert. And the solution to dehydration is not to say, well, it just doesn't exist. I'm actually not dehydrated. (laughs) Instead, the solution to dehydration is to go get some water. And when we have those feelings of condemnation upon our lives, don't go out into the desert. Don't run away from God. Don't say, he can't forgive me and he doesn't love me and I'm going to go run away from him. And don't deny that it exists. Don't deny that 
yeah, I, I have messed up, that I have made mistakes, I have sinned. Instead, go to the grace of God and go to the mercy of God, and he loves you and accepts you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done in your place. That's what conviction is, is it brings you to the grace of God. Condemnation is dehydration that sends you out into the desert. And when Adam sinned, it put us all underneath the reign of condemnation, that everyone walks around with deep-seated condemnation over their lives. I don't know how many people I've talked to who have said, I just don't know that I'll ever not feel condemned. It's a consistent thing throughout all people at all times that there's a deep-seated sense of condemnation, that they're dehydrated and they're going out into the desert, but what they need is to go to the water of God's grace. But the second thing that happened as a result of Adam's sin is Paul says that we were made sinners. It says in verse 19, I believe it was, Verse 19 says that we were made sinners. Through the sin of Adam, we were made sinners. And what that means is, is that at the very core of who we are, we have a uh, bend towards rebellion. <laughs> but very, right deep down, there's a bend in every single person that is towards rebellion, towards uh, independence from God, and towards uh, wanting to be our own master and our own Lord, the captain of our own destiny. There's an inherited uh, nature within the very core of all of us that is corrupted in that way. It says that we were made sinners. And so when we, um, when we go out into the world and we sin, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. <laughs> Because it's a part of who we are. And we all know that we don't have to teach a two-year-old to lie. I now have a two-year-old niece, and I can confirm that. <laughs> and one of my good buddies, who's, uh, he teaches the Bible, and whenever he teaches this concept, uh, he talks about his first word as a child. His parents told him what his first word was. You know, like the first word... Um, you, you want to be like, mom's like, can you say mommy? And dad's like, can you say daddy? And his first word was no. <laughs> the first word out of his mouth was disobedience to his parents. <laughs> From the very first moment, it was inside of him for rebellion. <laughs> That's the sin nature that you and I are all born in and a part of. But not only that, not only are, are we born into that, it says, uh, well, it says in Psalm 51, if you want a verse on it, uh, it says, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. At the moment of life and at the moment of personhood, I was, I was corrupted. <laughs> I had to bend towards rebellion. But not only that, it also talks about, in this passage, an inherited guilt, which means that because of the sin of Adam, he was our representative. He was our representative. He was our champion who was going to go and face down evil and darkness. And if, depending on if he stands or falls, we all stand and fall. 
And the unfortunate thing was, is he fell. And so now we all have an inherited guilt as humans that come along with that. And so when you combine our inherited guilt and our inherited sin nature and corruption, and you combine the condemnation that is true throughout all time and all people and all history, it turns into a great big reign of death. Over and over again in this passage, it says that there is a reign, a kingdom of death. And when I looked up that word for reign in the Greek, because the New Testament was originally written in Greek, um, reign, it, it means like kingdom reign. <laughs> like it's, it's an influence that isn't minor. It's not like an Instagram influencer who doesn't really influence every, anything. It's in fact a real influence throughout the entire world, right? It's a kingly authority. And it, that same word is used to describe the messianic reign of Christ. That's how strong it is. This reign of death. And we see it in the book of Genesis. You know all the genealogies that you read and you're like, I don't know how to say any of these names. Those genealogies, what's the thing that's repeated over and over and over and over and over again? No matter how long they lived, they died. And -and so-and-so died. And -and so-and-so died. All of us, ultimately, are underneath the reign of death. But... So that's the fallout that comes from Adam's sin. But in verse 14, it says, Adam was a type of the one who is to come. No word for type. I've talked about it before. Um, Think of a typewriter, right? On a typewriter, you have like an old traditional one. You know, like if you're a hipster and you write letters on a typewriter. So you have an old typewriter and you press it and then you have like the hammer. And the hammer comes up and slaps the paper with like some ink. And then it leaves like an imprint of the letter behind, and then it goes back down. And we call it typing because you're leaving a type, an impression, the the letter on the piece of paper. The actual letter itself, the substance, like the thing itself is the like hammer thing, but it leaves behind an impression. Adam, he's just like a letter. Jesus, he's the substance. He's the true second Adam, who he does what Adam couldn't do. He's more than what Adam could ever be. And where Adam failed, Jesus actually succeeds. And so what uh, Paul does is he starts to parallel Adam and Jesus together. And just in case we get like, we think that Adam and Jesus are on the same level, he starts off with two things that are totally different about Adam and Jesus. Look with me at verse 15. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. He's like, yeah, it might be a type, but there's something totally different happening at the same time. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So what he contrasts here is the free gift and the trespass. Adam, he trespassed. Through Jesus, we receive a free gift. In Adam, he had to actively disobey in order to get the reward of death. In Jesus, we have the free acceptance of life. It's like God made it as easy as possible for Adam to not sin. 
He had fulfilling work. He had companionship. He had pets. Like, he had everything he could want. And God just said, don't eat of that one tree. Just, you can eat anything else, just, just this one. And, and I'll give you everything you could possibly need otherwise. And he had to actively trespass in order to be able to get the reward of death. It was like when I used to be a middle school pastor, I would take kids over to uh, the coast for camp sometimes. And don't tell anybody this, but uh, we had this giant big field at, at the camp, this huge field. But on one side of the field, they would always turn a little bit muddy. And the reason why was because the septic tank would back up. Yeah. And so it would turn it all to like mud. And so it was like diluted excrement with mud and absurdly green grass. Like not, should not be that green. And so, (laughs) so we would put cones around it and be like, you have an entire field. Entire field. Go play to your heart's content, kickball, whatever you want, and we'll play games out there. And we put cones around it, like do not cross. Inevitably, someone would go running through it. And you're just like, dude, what are you doing? So we did everything we could to communicate. Just don't step here. And it's like, that's what the Lord did. He was like, everything I can do, like there's no need for this one space. And the only thing you're going to get is some like just death. Like, it's going to be gross. You, got, you get nothing for it. And yet, Adam trespassed. He actively did it. But through Jesus, he gives us something where we don't even have to actively trespass. It's instead given. It's a free gift. Multiple times in this passage, it says it's a free gift. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. So it's different in that way. But not only that. Um, it's, it's different in the sense in which the result is different. Look with me at verse 16. And the free gift, again, the free gift, is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, which we already talked about. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This is like the thousandth time he said justification in like the first five chapters. (laughs) It's obviously really important. And so I'll say it again. Justification means that before the courtroom of God, it's courtroom imagery. If you believe in Jesus, God looks at you and declares not guilty. And not just not guilty, but perfect. Totally and completely righteous. As righteous, in fact, as God himself is. That's what we have in justification. If we believe in Jesus, we're not guilty and made totally and completely righteous. And I think the reason why, oftentimes for me, I've heard that so many times, that I just get kind of like, oh yeah, that's cool. (laughs) You know? And I think the reason why that is, is because in my heart, I tend to value something else more than God's opinion of me. That I value really the opinion of other people more than I value God's opinion of me. And that's why I can't take criticism. So if you have any criticism, don't talk to me afterwards. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I value the attention or someone might value their work 
more than they value God's approval of them. So they're constantly a workaholic and never doing enough. Or a person might value the love and affection of another person more than they value God, so they're going to compromise their standards because they really value that, more than they value the justification and the opinion of God. And the only way that I can think of to really get out of that is to put it on scale and say, okay, who is really evaluating me when God says I declare you righteous and that you are no longer guilty? It's God declaring that to me. (laughs) And I so often rise and fall with the opinions of the people around me, yet God himself is declaring his approval of me. And the reason why we don't have that resonate in our hearts is we don't recognize the bigness of God. When the bigness of God hits home and rings true, then the fact that he says we're not guilty and he says that we're righteous Game changer. And so I'm going to do a classic space illustration because that's what pastors do when they try and talk about how big God is. They talk about space, right? <laughs> space, okay, this will, this will literally take a second because I don't know anything about it. <laughs> this is Google. Um, okay, light years. We're just going to do that. Light years. It's like 186,000 miles per second, right? Is how far light travels in one second. And how they measure the universe is how long light travels in a year. The width of the Milky Way galaxy is 2 million light years. Which means Star Wars is not even close. When they jump to light speed and they get there, it's like if you jump to light speed to get across the galaxy, see you in 2 million years. Like, that's how fast you'll get there. (laughs) So, The Force Awakens, debunked. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But, like, that's just one galaxy, and there's, like, billions of galaxies or something. I don't know. But it's just, like, huge. God is one who created all of that, and God is bigger than all of that, and God is more worth than all of that, and he could be interested in the beauty of nebulas or the weirdness of black holes, but instead he's looking at us. And as affection and attention is fixed upon us. And when we see that that big of a God sets his affection upon us, that makes the justification that we've received, the acceptance and the declaration of not guilty, have more weight and more value than what any other person can say about us. So if you feel that condemnation that comes when you don't live up to someone else's standard, look to the bigness and greatness of God and recognize that if you believe in him, he looks at you and declares not guilty. Righteous, as righteous as I am. So, the sin of Adam led to condemnation And he had to really work for it too. (laughs) He had to trespass. Jesus, it's a free gift that leads to justification. That's how they're different. But how are they the same? In verse 18, actually verse 17, it says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Notice how many times one is repeated. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive 
the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign, there's the reign word again, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as when trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Seven times he says the word one. (laughs) Here's what he's saying. He's saying Adam was your representative and through his one act, we all inherited the sin nature, corruption and reign of death. Jesus, he's our one man who goes before us and finds victory. He is the ultimate fulfillment of David and Goliath, that classic kid story that we all heard growing up. And we were all told, if you can believe it, you can take down the giant. And that's not the point at all. The point is, Jesus goes in our place and he goes and slays the giant. Jesus is our representative and we are standing in the crowd, the Israelites who wouldn't dare go face the guy because we know we have no shot cowering in our boots. And Jesus goes and he defeats the giant and we get to receive the victory that he accomplished. We get to say, we are now set free. And even though Adam, he went out and he failed and we have been underneath this reign of death, now because Jesus, he went out and succeeded, we get to be underneath a new reign, underneath a new kingdom that is filled with new life. Through one man's disobedience, death came. Through one man's obedience, life has come. And it's through that one man. And now you might be thinking, okay, So, through one man's obedience, death, or obedience, life came. Through one man's disobedience, death came. Stephen, when you're talking about the whole inherited guilt thing, about how through one man's disobedience, we all are, like, guilty, that doesn't seem very fair. I wasn't in Eden. Why am I declared guilty for that? (laughs) That doesn't seem fair. Like, because Adam messed up, now I have the, like, I have to deal with all the ramifications of Adam's mistake. I'm an American. (laughs) I don't, I don't do that. (laughs) But here's what I would say. First, the problem with this is, is if you accept that through one man's obedience, you get to be made righteous, then you have to accept that through one man's disobedience, we were all declared unrighteous that we all it's the same mechanism it's the same thing but not only that if we were in adam's situation we all would have fell too and the reason why i know that is because i sinned earlier today already (laughs) i've already blown it like thousands of times and just in case paul like he just knows. But just in case we think, oh yeah, maybe like I could have made it. He then throws in this little number in verse 20 where he says, now the law came to increase the trespass. If we think that, oh, like we'll, we'll be okay. Or like if I was there, I would have been okay. Think about what the law says. Simple law, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's one law. Love your neighbor as yourself. What that means is, is with all the creativity all of the compassion, all of the passion, all of the gentleness, 
all of the specificity that you would want to receive from someone, you give to your neighbor. Who's my neighbor, right? Everybody. (laughs) Every single person. And not just for one moment, but for every moment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Really try it for a little while. (laughs) I dare you. And you will find, I I can't do it. The law says, it says, came to increase the trespass. It's in order to increase the knowledge of our sinfulness, to help us to recognize, wow, if I really just did that one commandment, and in the Old Testament there were 613 of them, if I can't even do this one, love your neighbor as yourself, it, it, I understand now that even if, it, if I was in Adam's position, I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. So what's the solution then? What Jesus brings. And what Jesus brings is he brings a payment for the sin, but also more than just, a, or in addition to the payment of sin, he also brings righteousness that is given to you and me. And what righteousness is, it is a standing of rightness before God. It is um, the right deeds that Jesus accomplished are given to us. So in Jesus, what, what we have is, see, our, our sin, it says the wages of sin is death. It means, like, by us trespassing, we just ended up in a big pile of mud <laughs> and other things. That's where we end up with our sin. That's the wages. That's the result. That's what you, that's what you get to pay for. That's just, that's just where it's at. So in order for us to get out of it, someone has to come and grab the mud and take it off of us. And in so doing, take it upon themselves. And what Jesus, he comes, is he says, I'm going to take all of that mud and I'm going to put it on myself. I am going to myself become sin. It says, He who knew no sin became sin. He took it upon himself. He decided to bear our iniquities. So that way he could then take it from us. So that way the death that we deserved could be broken. How do you know that it was broken? How do we know that the death that we deserved was broken? It's because when Jesus, he took that on the cross and he died in our place, he went through death and out the other side into resurrection and the reign of death was broken. That in Jesus, the reign of death has been broken because he went through death by taking the sin upon himself. He went through death and into new life. And now if we believe in him, all of our sin are cast upon Jesus. And so that now all of it is totally forgiven and paid in full. And then all of his obedience is now given to us. See, this is the crazy thing. All of his obedience is given to us. It says in Hebrews that he learned obedience. Which at first is like, wait, how did God learn obedience? (laughs) What it means is, is not that he went from disobedience to obedience, but he grew in his capacity to obey as he grew as a human. Which means sometimes people think of Jesus as like a four-year-old who was like doing calculus. It's like, that's, no. (laughs) He was still, he was a four-year-old. And as a four-year-old, he was perfectly obedient as a four-year-old. 
And then he learned obedience. He grew in his capacity to obey and was perfectly obedient through the angsty teenager phase and on into the adolescence and into the young adulthood. He was perfectly obedient at every single stage of life. And that obedience now is given to you and it is attributed as if you had done it yourself. So if you look back to a certain phase of your life and you say, oh, that adolescent phase, oh my gosh, I just wish that was gone. All of those mistakes that I made, good news, they're gone. Oh, I wish I would have done that perfectly and I I just didn't. Good news, God looks at you as if you did. Every single phase of life. In your place, God looks at you as if you lived a totally, completely perfect life because of what Jesus has done. And now, because of that, the reign of death is broken. And so here's what this means. Just a couple implications and then we'll be done. What this means is, is we don't have to fear death. We can instead follow our champion through death and out the other side to resurrection. Through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. And going through that valley, we end up out the other side in a new resurrected body, living with him forever. And we have this hope that is an anchor for the soul. It says in Hebrews, we have no longer any fear of death. But not only that, A lot of us in following after Jesus, if you're like me, (laughs) you know that you're struggling and fighting against sin. That there's sin in our lives. There's things in which we miss the mark. What sin means is it was an archery turn where like at the center was the bullseye. If you missed the bullseye, that was a sin. It's like, ah, well, it wasn't perfect. If at any point you haven't been perfect, that's a sin. <laughs> so if you're like me, it's like all the time. And it's so frustrating. And you're like, I'm trying so hard to do the right thing. And over and over and over again, I fail. Every single day. And it gets so frustrating and so exhausting. And you're thinking, when will this ever end? Will I ever win this battle? And the answer is yes. Sin has been broken in your life. And you may not see the victory in this life, but eventually throughout eternity, you will be set free from it. It's a winning battle. It's not a losing battle. The battle for holiness is not a losing battle. It's a winning battle that we will eventually win one day because of what he has done, because of his grace and because of his love. And so if you're struggling to follow after Jesus and you feel the weight of condemnation, know that when you do sin, run to the water of Jesus first and keep fighting. Keep following after him because the victory is assured. The victory is 100% assured. I think of the... um, I think of the movie The Lord of the Rings because I just watched it not too long ago. And so good. But there's one part at the end of The Return of the King. You know where they have like five different endings where like you think it's going to be done, but then they keep going again. Okay, I guess no one knows what that is. Never mind. Uh, um, But they left one out, believe it or not, from the books. Even though they included so much, they left one of them out. And what happens is at the end of the books... Um, the uh, white wizard whose name was Saruman and his sidekick Wormtongue, they don't 
uh, die like it is in the movies. They instead are cast out and they are just go out into the wilderness. And you don't really hear from them for the rest of the book. But then all of a sudden, the hobbits, after the victory has been won, they're on the way back to the Shire. You know, like the Edenic like Shire place where like they just look like they have all the fun all the time and I want to live there. And they're on their way back to the Shire and when they get back, they all of a sudden start seeing like all these like factories and like, uh, like water wheels and smoke and like, what, what is, it? this was not here. And then like one of their old houses, like their old buddy's houses was like destroyed and it's like, what is going on? And they get back and, and Solomon and Wormtongue, they've now taken over the Shire and they've lied to the hobbits and they're controlling the hobbits and all of these things and Sam and Frodo and Pippin and Mary, they're like, no, like this is not happening. And they are now changed from their journey. And so they like get up on like horses and they have this big battle against them and they like rescue the Shire from Saruman and Wormtongue and they cast them out from there. And it's this huge, big, epic battle. And the reason why they can be so confident and the reason why they know that they're going to be able to take their land back is because they know that the king is on the throne. (laughs) That the Aragorn's already there. Like it's done. Like this guy's already been defeated like months ago. Again, this is our, like this is this is over, and so they go in with so much confidence, so much excitement, and just kind of interesting fun fact: Merry and Pippin become like the heroes, which is really funny because like Frodo and Sam are like the main heroes of like the main movie, but like back in the hometown, like Merry and Pippin are hometown heroes because of what they did. <laughs> Frodo and Sam are just like, all right, cool, whatever, and so like they're just like ballers and they go and they take back the Shire because they know that the king has come. And in your life, you might be saying that there are like, there are strongholds that the enemy has in my life. There are, there are factories of sin and I just don't know that I can get liberated from it. The king is on the throne and it might take time. In fact, it will. In fact, it will only end when we get to heaven But for now, we can be a part of the battle. We can be in the fight. And we can be confident and assured of victory because of what Jesus has done. Because we know that if we believe in him, if we confess our faith in him, God looks at us and says, you are as righteous as I am. And you are totally and completely guiltless. There is no more condemnation. That's what we have when we believe in Jesus, an ultimate assured victory because death has been broken, the power of sin has been broken, and we now get to walk in the newness of life and walk in the victory that he has brought because the king is on the throne. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to take a poll. I'm going to take a poll right now, and then I'm going to pray. This is all on the fly. I don't know what's happening. Um, Do you guys want to do some worship or do you guys want to just chill? Raise your hand if you want to worship. Yeah? Okay. Boom. All right. We're worshiping. Sweet. Um, Cool. So Joe's going to come. There we go. Yeah, Joe's going to come do some a couple worship songs. And then we're just going to hang out and chill. Have foosball. Hang out. So let's pray. Lord.
thank you that you have brought the victory. That because you died on the cross, you took our sin upon yourself. That there is now no condemnation, that our sin is as far as the east is from the west. And while we have a sin nature, Lord, the power of sin has been broken. And that you, the God of the entire universe, looks down at us and says, You are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Thank you. You're so good and so kind. I pray for those who are struggling with sin, which means all of us. (laughs) I pray that you would give us the strength, the endurance, the hope, and the confidence to know that victory is assured. And while we may not experience the fullness of it now, we look forward to the day when we pass through death and on into a new life a resurrected life. That's the fullness of everything life was meant to be. We look forward to that day, Lord. Thank you. We commit ourselves to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.